the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 13, Mission in Manchester. Dustin jogged down the driveway. The two-wheeled dolly rattled behind him, a car battery strapped to the frame. Dustin paused to catch his breath. I brought back Mr. Murdoch's battery. It's really low. I told him we'd charge it up. Our number three had 12.9 volts, so his repeater should be good and strong now. He said he has his radio tuned to the Manchester frequency. Great, said Judy. She gave her husband a squeeze and a kiss. Let's get started. She hurried up the stairs. In the corner bedroom, Judy sat at a tall stool beside the dresser. Her radio equipment, all on loan from Walter, sat in a stack on the chest. The antenna wire ran out the window. Judy leaned close to her microphone. CQ, CQ, this is K1NTZB, Simmons in Cheshire, calling for Walsh Brothers, Manchester. Need to come to Elliot. Please advise. Over. She leaned back on her stool. Well, how long before they respond? Martin asked as he paced back and forth in front of the bed. His mind was still spoiled by the instant communications of the world before the grid collapse. Well, it could be a while. Judy looked at the clock. First comes, I repeat. The radio's small speaker replayed her voice. CQ, CQ, this is K1NTZB, Simmons in Cheshire. Calling for Walsh Brothers, Manchester. Need to come to Elliot. Please advise. Over. That was the parrot repeater in Mr. Murdoch's barn, she said. From his cupola, its line of sight to the repeater on Devil's Hill in Longmeadow. They run that repeater for ten minutes at the top of every hour. We're right in the start of their ten. Hopefully, one of the Walsh Brothers will reply before the ten is over. And if they don't, we have to wait for two hours to try again? Martin didn't like delays. Margaret's fever was not going down. Every moment of inaction felt like a loss. Um, I guess so. Judy feigned adjusting the equipment as a way to avoid eye contact. Devil's Hill is a repeater with a step down, so we won't hear my message repeated again. The one on Mount Minor is another parrot, though. They leave it on longer. Uh, we might be able to have Mr. Murdoch tune for Mount Minor uh, in case they... Martin's frown drained the momentum out of her conjecture. You said yesterday how Devil's Hill was a vital link. Yeah, well, I meant... Uh, I can't stand around here doing nothing. How long before we hear anything, assuming anyone does reply? Oh, uh, well, uh, the repeater on Devil's Hill is direct. But Mount Miner's simplex on a 30-second cycle, so our message should have left Mount Miner by now, uh, assuming anyone's monitoring in Manchester, and one of the Walsh brothers are nearby. The conjectural ice was getting thin again. Five minutes? Judy forced a smile. I'll be back. I got a pack on the assumption that I'm going. Martin spun on his heel and left the room. You can stop trying to be quiet, Margaret said with a raspy voice. I'm not sleeping. 
Oh, uh, sorry, Martin said softly. I need to pack my backpack for a trip to Manchester. He rolled up a pair of socks and a pair of underwear and pushed them into a waterproof stuff sack. Elliot Hospital might still have some of the medicines Connie told me about. It's probably going to take the rest of the day, but just in case it does go long, I'm taking overnight things. Margaret propped herself up on one elbow. I think Candace's green tea is helping to... <coughs> A coughing jag cut her sentence short. Martin had to resist his impulse for snide comments about the effectiveness, or the lack thereof, in Candace's naturalist remedies. He chose instead to focus on the positives. It was he, himself, who touted the value of long shots. Well, anything that helps, eh? He tried a smile. Oh, that's right, Margaret laid back down. Mr. Simmons, Mr. Simmons, Judy called out from the other room. Come quick. Martin arrived just as the message concluded. Oh, what did they say? Oh, hold on, Judy continued scribbling on a notepad. She held up the paper and cleared her throat. Simmons, Cheshire, Hanover Street, safest route. Meet you at Sitgo after 93 overpass, 10 a.m., Davy Walsh. Ten o'clock? Martin looked at his watch. That gives me less than an hour to get there. What, does he think I live next door? He ran back into the master bedroom. Well, it looks like the trip is a go, he said to Margaret. He stuffed more gear into the zipper pockets of his pack. I sure hope Carlos was able to reach Robert. The only way I'll make it in time is with his two-wheel trap. Yeah, I've got to run. You, you be a good patient and drink your tea. I know you don't like tea, but it's uh, good for you. He kissed her on the forehead. Margaret cleared her throat disapprovingly and glared at him. <clears throat> that is not a kiss. Martin smiled. He cradled her chin in his hand and gave her a gentle kiss on the lips. He wanted to enjoy the softness, but the heat of the fever allowed no comfort. Well, back when I can, he said. He pulled on his pack and rushed out. Pacing back and forth at the end of the driveway gave no satisfaction. He wanted to jog toward the approach of Robert and his trap, assuming Carlos had found Robert. Martin had no way of knowing which way they would come. Pacing was only slightly better than standing still. The faint sound of hooves on gravel arose to his right. They were coming down the hill. Martin bolted into a run. He met Robert's trap near the dead substation. Hola, Mr. S said Carlos with a wave. He sat beside Robert on the trap's bench. Mr. Robert was in his front paddock, easy to find. Robert pulled Jasmine up to a stop in the middle of the road. Uh, Carlos said you need to get to Manchester. Something about medicine for Margaret? Martin took Carlos's place beside Robert on the trap's bench. I hope they have the medicines. We won't know until we get there. Need to meet Davy Walsh at ten. He said to come in on Hanover Street. Oh, well, we'll have to go right past Indian Lakes to make it work. No time for back roads. Uh, we should be okay, though, said Robert. Horses aren't quiet, but they're quick. Little time for hoodlums to do anything organized. Robert flicked and pulled the reins to turn the trap around. As they pulled away, Martin remembered that he wanted to tell Carlos to run Tin Man and charge up Mr. Merdot's battery. He looked back and waved, but Carlos was walking away not watching. Martin put two fingers in his mouth and let out a loud, shrill whistle to get Carlos's attention. Jasmine stopped suddenly. 
She whinnied, reared up, and almost dumped Martin over the seat back. Robert hopped off and pulled Jasmine back down by her harness. He rubbed her neck and mumbled comforting words. Okay, said Robert to Martin. Don't ever do that again. She hates loud, high-pitched sounds. Oh, I didn't know. Martin reslung his carbine over his shoulder. I was just trying to get Carlos's attention. Well, next time, shout or something else. High-pitched sounds have always freaked her out. I had to replace one of the barn door hinges because it kept squeaking. She'd thrash around in her stall and hurt herself. It's going to take a little while to get her calmed down. Robert continued to stand close and stroke Jasmine's head. All the tumult brought Carlos running up to help. Martin explained about the battery. Martin kicked himself for using up precious travel time. Robert had to keep Jasmine at a trot to make up the time they'd lost. Martin felt stupid for causing the delay, but thought the bright side was that they passed Indian Lakes quickly. He saw that the squatter's camp on the far side was still active, but no one made any trouble as they passed. Martin waved to a man sitting on a bicycle beneath the old Sitco station's canopy. The man had a rifle slung over his back and was watching the road. Martin couldn't tell from that distance, but presumed it was Davy Walsh. The man waved back. Davy! Martin hopped off the trap and shook Davy's hand. Thanks for helping. I, I need to get to the Elliot and see if they have any medicines for my sick wife. Ah, so that's the deal. Yeah, you're fifteen minutes late. I was about to give up on you. Figured you were having trouble with the blues again. Not that a sick wife isn't trouble enough, of course. Oh, I know, reassured Martin. Well, that's okay. Uh, no, I caused us to get a later start. Uh, why Hanover Street? Are you having gang trouble on the east side again? Eh, Davy shrugged. More to the south. The blues got kicked out of the airport and had been making trouble here and there on the south side. I figured Hanover was far enough north to avoid him. I can give you a bit of an escort to the Elliot. Mind if I uh, hitch a ride behind you? Robert nodded and pointed with his head to the package shelf rail at the rear of the trap. David positioned his bike behind the trap's the left tire and held the bar. Jasmine had them bouncing along at a brisk trot. Her loud clip-clops echoed off the tall walls of the closely built two- and three-story houses. Not sure how much you'll find at the Elliot, David shouted over Jasmine's hoof clatter. Folks there have been pretty busy this winter. Lots of sick people. Mostly from lack of food or frostbite. I hear they're tapped out for a lot of meds. Oh, gotta check anyhow, Martin said over his shoulder. No stone unturned. Jasmine and the trap slowed for the roundabout at the entrance to the main hospital building. Knots of people sat beneath the concrete and glass overhang. Most had bundles or packs or bags. Uh, people waiting for patients? Patient overflow? Homeless people with no other shelter? The people stared silently at the horse and cart. Martin assumed horses were a less common sight in town. Now we'll go wait for you in that grassy yard thing over there, Robert said. He pointed to a patch of grass and trees beyond the vast parking lot. Several abandoned cars still dotted the expanse of pavement. Their tires were gone, burned for fuel by desperate city residents. Six months of grime streaked the dead cars' windows. Leaves and debris had blown in around the hulks, 
making them impromptu landscaping features. Inside the hospital lobby, more people sat on any available furniture or the floor. The air was stale with a blend of body odor, antiseptic, old vomit, and urine. The smell was powerful when they entered the lobby. It surprised Martin how quickly his nose grew accustomed to it. Staff bustled about with clipboards or boxes. No one took notice of Martin, despite his efforts to catch their eyes. Uh, excuse me? Martin leaned in front of one woman walking by briskly. She glanced at him as if he was an inanimate object to be avoided. Um, excuse me? Martin asked a second staff woman. I'm here to see Dr. Rowlett. She too hurried on without a word. Uh, do they all take a vow of silence or something? Martin wondered. He was trying to ask them for medicine, so he couldn't afford to get belligerent. Uh, I'm here to see Dr. Rowlett, Martin said to a third woman. He's busy, was all the woman said as she passed. Well, of course he is, Martin muttered to himself. I didn't think he'd be spending his day off here. Martin vowed to be more persistent, yet polite, with the next staffer that he saw. Oh, hello, Mr. Walsh, said a woman from behind them. Uh, what can we do for you today? Uh, hi, said Davy. Uh, we're here to see Dr. Rowlett. I'll go let him know, the woman strode down the long hallway. Well, that was easy. Mr. Walsh, Martin asked with a smile. Uh, yeah, I know. Davy smiled and rubbed the back of his neck. Hey, it sounds dumb, like I'm my father or something. But Leo says not to correct people. It's a sign of respect. The militia has been pretty big factor in keeping order here in town. The thin man, dressed in stained scrubs cap and wearing a surgical mask, came down the hall toward them. Mr. Walsh, is there a problem? Oh, uh, no problems, said Davy. My friend here was sent to see you, Davy pointed to Martin. Dr. Rowlett's forehead furrowed in a deeply disapproving frown. He was apparently not happy about a non-emergency interruption. What is it? I don't have much time. Well, I came because... Martin was unsure how to introduce his convoluted story quickly. Uh, Connie Taup said that I should come see you. She said that you know her, uh, a nurse at Nutfield Community Hospital. Taup? Rowlett's furrows changed momentarily from miffed to puzzled. Oh, yes, recovery wing, good nurse, always followed directions. Uh, why did she send you? Martin hadn't realized how much he took for granted seeing people's lips move when they spoke. The gyrating paper mask had a surreal quality that he found distracting. Send? Uh, oh, right, she said that you might have some of these. He handed the doctor his notepaper. Uh, my wife is sick with MRSA. It's really bad. Fever, weakness... Connie says it's getting into her blood. Pepricillin, Tazobactam, Meropenem? Uh, we haven't had these specialty antibiotics for months, he handed the notepaper back to Martin. Uh, we get some amoxicillin now and then from salvage crews, but none of those would help for MRSA. Even if we did, we certainly wouldn't be giving anything away. Now, if you'll excuse me... Dr. Rowlett began to turn away. What about CMC? asked Martin. D do you think they'd have any? CMC? Are you kidding? snarked Dr. Rowlett. 
Well, yes, they have some, but they're not giving anything away either. Besides, you'd never get there to ask them. Well, why not? Dr. Rowlett looked at Davy with an imploring and impatient look. Ah, Catholic Medical Center's on the west side, said Davy. It's been in the King Gang's hands since before Christmas. You can't just go walking in there. The Kings have all the bridges to the west side blocked. Yeah, they don't take kindly to intruders. Well, I didn't know, said Martin. Uh, wait, you said they did have those drugs. If people can't get to CMC, how do you know what they have? Dr. Rowlett's eyes blinked nervously. He glanced around, then motioned for Martin and Davy to follow him to a corner of the lobby. His voice lowered to a whisper. I know because I trade with one of the doctors there. We've exchanged lists of our inventories. It's not supposed to be common knowledge that we trade with the kings. Yeah, it's true, Davy said. The kings tolerate some trading. Doc here meets his counterpart, Dr. Bellevue, in the middle of Notre Dame Bridge to exchange stuff. They won't let anybody but Dr. Rowlett come onto the bridge. And they won't just hand over medications to some random person, said Dr. Rowlett. They won't even let you close enough to ask. Martin bristled at all the negativity. Won't, won't, won't. I'm sick of won't. His snarky streak got the better of him. Fine. I'll go across in a boat at night and talk trade with Dr. Bellevue directly. He was being flippant out of rebellion. All the furrows disappeared from Dr. Rowlett's face. His eyes grew wide. You, you have a boat? He whispered. Martin was taken aback at the doctor's sudden change in attitude. He was thinking of the boats they had used to come up the river for the airport operation. Kutch had them hidden in an abandoned garage and spoke of returning to get them later when he had a truck big enough. Kutch had just acquired the five-ton truck from Quinn's base. Martin guessed that collecting some random small boats wasn't high on the sergeant's to-do list. They were probably still in that garage. Well, I think I know where I can get one. Why? Martin asked cautiously. Well, that changes things, said Dr. Rowlett. Follow me. He led Martin and Davy across the corridor to a small office and closed the door. The room was cluttered and dark, lit only by what indirect daylight came through the small window in the door. Martin was having second thoughts about what he might be getting himself into. His boat comment was intended as a snide dig, but suddenly it had become a serious topic. You, do you really have a boat? Dr. Rowlett asked. His tone was more eager and somewhat pleading compared to his earlier smug dismissiveness. Well, I think I can get one. You haven't said why you're interested. Martin remained puzzled at the abrupt change in attitude. Because your plan to cross the river at night is probably the only way you'll get the antibiotics your wife needs. I think I can help you with that. Once across the river, you won't know where to go or who to talk to. I do. Martin remained skeptical. Okay, but why are you offering to help me? Two minutes ago, you were kicking me to the curb. Well, I, uh, I am a doctor, so naturally I don't want to see anyone suffering if I can help them. You were a doctor before you thought I had a boat, Martin thought. My wife's illness didn't matter to you then. 
He held his tongue and stayed diplomatic. He was still asking for help, after all. And, uh, well, Dr. Rowlett's eyes glanced around, reflecting in her thoughts. Crossing at night means I could smuggle something out that the kings would never let out over the bridge. I help you, you help me. Davy leaned in. Yeah, they only let the two docks bring a single shopping bag with them onto the bridge. The docks make their trades and go back the way they came. That's right, that's right, nodded Dr. Rowlett. They're really strict about that. Your boat would be a chance to bring back much more than a mere shopping bag. That seemed plausible to Martin. He told his suspicions to stand down. Well, let's say I can bring a boat up here. What then? Could you get it up here today? Maybe by three or four o'clock? Martin was a bit taken aback by Dr. Rowlett's haste. But he welcomed it. He was in a hurry, too. Martin thought about the logistics. The garage was down near the airport. Assuming he and Robert could rig up one of the boats to the trap somehow, they could make it back by four? Uh, I think so. Uh, where? Excellent, Dr. Rowlett rubbed his hands together. His eyes smiled above his impassive mask. Do you know the mill building up near the dam with the clock tower? Uh, no. I do, said Davy. I'll show you where it is on the map. I'll meet you there, too, with some of my guys. Robert kept Jasmine's pace at a slow plod, even though she wanted to trot. They could have traveled faster, but someone in a hurry tends to attract attention. They were trying to be boring and obscure. Behind the trap trundled an upside-down duck-hunting pram. It was only six feet long, but looked huge compared to the spindly trap. Martin had rigged up the remnants of a kid's bike to the back of the pram to make a sort of unicycle trailer. Someone had taken the front fork and wheel for some other project. The chain was missing, too. The stripped frame and rear wheel were enough. Martin had lashed the frame to the stern of the pram. It was rickety, but sufficient. The way Dr. Rowlett leapt at the notion of having a boat, Martin guessed that boats were a rare and coveted commodity. To disguise the pram, Martin tied a board to the top and draped a tattered tarp across it. Robert tried to stay on less-traveled roads through the mill district to avoid as many eyes as possible. They made their way up Commercial Street. Some residents walking in the street did stop and stare at the curious sight of a horse, cart, and tarp-covered hulk. None of them seemed overcome with zeal to seize the unknown cargo. Perhaps the carbine held at the ready in Martin's lap was discouragement enough. Maybe they were too hungry or weary to care. Oh, there's the clock tower building, said Martin. Oh, and that's Davy Walsh, standing by that stripped panel van. Martin waved for Davy to see, although Jasmine was prominent enough. You're early, said Dr. Rowlett. Martin would not have recognized him without the cap and mask. He was a moderately tall man, slender, with thin, graying hair. It was his forehead wrinkles that gave him away. Oh, that's great. Now, let's have a look at your... He pulled the tarp away. That's it? That's your boat? Well, it's big enough for the two of us, Martin said, a little defensively. Besides, it's the only one of them that we could plausibly rig up to the trap and pull up here. But... But, 
Dr. Rowlett looked confused as his eyes scanned back and forth across the pram. It's a duck hunting pram. It's made for two. It'll be fine. It's even better that it's plastic and dark brown, not white or silver like the others. Better for staying unseen on a river at night, don't you think? No, I guess. The doctor didn't sound convinced as his eyes measured the pram. Better for navigating the rocks, too, I figure, added Martin. Uh, where do we put in? Over here. I'll show you. Dr. Rowlett led the group to the north end of the building. Between the clock tower mill building and the power company building was a gap twenty yards wide. The river filled that gap with a semi-tranquil swirling backwater. Beyond the buildings, the river roared and foamed over boulders. With the small Amoskeg hydropower station out of commission, all of the spring's high water flowed over the top of the dam and through the rocky rapids. I figured it would be safer to put in upstream from CMC and drift down. Dr. Rowlett had to raise his voice to be heard over the water's roar. This is the only calm spot that's out of view of the king's sentries. That looks like pretty rough water out there, said Martin. Is that why you were worried about having a little boat? Well, if we stay up close to the mill buildings, the water will still be fast, but there are no rocks. Well, great, but then what? Martin asked. That's what we need to figure out. Let's take a walk along the river and do some thinking. Dr. Rowlett gestured back to the clock tower building. Well, isn't it dangerous to walk out in the open like this? Martin asked. He cast worried glances at the west bank of the river. There was plenty of cover and concealment for snipers. That's not all that dangerous anymore, said Davy. His men had stayed with Robert, Jasmine, and the boat to ensure their safety while the three men took their recon walk. Eh, the kings have settled down a lot from the early days. Ammo is scarce, and they're not looking for new troubles. They're probably watching us, so don't look around like you're scoping things out. They'll see that and might put on more guards. They won't try to snipe us? Martin felt very exposed on the brick river walk. The low concrete wall below the pipe railing would only offer cover if he laid on the walkway. I don't think so, said Dr. Rowlett. They know me, and they think they need me for trading for medical supplies. Martin glanced at the turbulent foaming water near the wall without turning his head. Well, I like that the river is so loud. It'll easily cover up any paddling sounds we make. We'll have to cut across to the other side as soon as we can, though. Look at this churn here. It would eat us alive. What do you mean, they think they need you? Truth is, CMC already has a ton of medical supplies. Last fall, the staff could see that the hospital was going to be overrun and captured by the kings. They hid almost everything they had, and what was in the Rite Aid next door. They told the kings that other gangs had already looted the place. The staff used them sparingly to avoid giving away their secret. Martin gestured with the tip of his head. We'll need to be on the west side of the river before we go under Notre Dame Bridge. The water's not so rough near the second pier. The bridge is pretty high. I doubt a sentry up there would notice anything floating under him. Wait, if CMC already has all those supplies, how can they trade with you without tipping off the gang that they really do have stuff? Dr. Rowlett chuckled nervously. Well, we always worried about that. The CMC folks pretend to lack supplies. 
Dr. Bellevue thinks it has made the kings more careful to prevent injuries. The staff tell the kings that they must trade for what they need, trading as cover for using some of their own hidden stash. The kings traded miscellaneous hardware like car batteries and tools. Nowadays they trade people. Hostages? Oh, not so much hostages as people who want out of king's territory. Medical supplies are the king's price for their freedom. Supplies which are already on their side of the river? Added Martin. That's kind of ironic. Oh, look at that sandy area across from us. If we stay tight on the left of that taller old bridge pier, the water is smoother and the sandy edge is less steep. And there are trees to shield us from view. I say we land there. Sounds good, said Dr. Rowlett, especially since that sandy spot is close to where we're going. That lower brick building across from us is where the kings make the CMC staff live. The hospital complex is just on the other side of those taller buildings. See that billboard on the side of the nearest building? A window to the left of the third archway is unlocked. We can get in that way. And why would you know that? Martin's skepticism resurfaced. Dr. Bellevue and I discussed things like that on the bridge. While we were pretending to haggle over our trades, we swapped information. The staff use that window to sneak out at night if they have to. The kings check the doors, but not the windows down there. They're mostly just storerooms. You said the kings make them live there. But they have a window that they can sneak out of? Why don't they just run away? Martin asked. Well, for one, they couldn't get past the bridge sentries, said Dr. Rowlett. For another, if one of the staff ran away, the kings would take it out on the rest of the staff. None of them wanted that. Ah, okay. Martin felt a little silly for being so skeptical. He felt like he was out on a thin limb with his nighttime river crossing mission. He was nervous and worried about Margaret. Perhaps that made him edgier. I'm not liking the look of those ten-foot-tall retaining walls for the highway. Martin didn't have a grappling hook and a rope. Ah, what about that grassy slope there to the left? Davy pointed with the tip of his head. Martin had to turn his head a little while not looking directly. The three men kept walking south along the river walk. Sure enough, between the trees he could see a slope of grass where the old and the new retaining walls didn't align. Yeah, we can get up that way, then across 293. There's probably a chain-link fence after that. There is, but we can get under that, said Dr. Rowlett. They tell me it isn't very sturdy. Okay, so we get in, make the trade, and get back out, said Martin. Then what? We have to get back across the river, but with the strong current, we'll be flowing downstream more than crossing. There's nothing but high brick and stone walls on this side. And look down the river a bit, before the Granite Street Bridge. More white water. Uh, we'll need to get ashore before that. I know the spot, said Davy. This way. The three men stood on a brick terrace below and beside the Granite Street Bridge. White crests of foam held their position in the swift river, betraying large rocks just beneath the surface. Between the terrace and the turbulence stood a ramshackle ridge of stone rubble that ran parallel to the shore. The wall was roughly ten feet wide 
and four feet tall. Small trees and shrubs grew amid the stone rubble. A channel behind the wall was twelve to twenty feet wide. The water flowed quickly, but relatively calm. That's the foundry channel, said Davy. The opening is up there. You can see the billboard over there, right? I figured you could paddle across and get into this channel, calm waters. You can float along to this terrace. See, there are steps down to the water in this corner. Well, how are we going to see where the opening is for that channel? asked Dr. Rowlett. Remember, it's going to be totally dark. Hmm, I have an idea for that, said Martin. Come on, I'll show you. Martin led the group to a wide gap between mill buildings at the head of the channel. He studied the distances and estimated the river's flow rate. There's the billboard. If we try paddling straight across, the current will give us a diagonal course. Davy, if you set up two lights, uh, a yellow one here on the railing and a white one back uh, over by that strip Toyota, say, we can keep on course by keeping the two lights aligned. When we come to the foundation walls, we just flow gently south in the channel until we get to the stairs. Uh, what do you think? Oh, I don't know, said Dr. Rowlett, but I don't have any better ideas. Right, let's get launched around nine o'clock. It should be good and dark by then. Well, we've had the ads playing for four episodes now. What do you, the listeners, think thus far? I don't know that I'm sold on the ads. They've not proven to be an amazing source of income. Granted, that's probably because the Siege podcast isn't a particularly high-volume podcast. It takes 1,000 impressions, someone listening to an ad, to generate $2. After four weeks, the ads have yielded about 57 cents a day. That's not any sort of woohoo mama retire to a beach kind of revenue. But then, not to sound ungrateful, if I saw 57 cents lying on the sidewalk, I'd stop to pick it up. The question is, how about you? How do you, the listeners, feel about the ads? Are they no big deal? Do you find them annoying and intrusive? Do you skip past them? In case you didn't know, and I didn't because I'm new to podcast advertising, if you skip an ad, the podcast doesn't get any credit for it. For the past four weeks, the ads have generated about $4 a week. While that's nice and all, a couple of virtual coffees a week would match that. Would you rather keep listening to the ads or buy me a coffee now and then and not have the ads? To give you listeners a way to give me some feedback on the ads question, I've put together another little survey. It'll run from Saturday morning, September 16th, to Saturday, September 30th. The link for the survey will be in the show notes, as well as on my Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon pages. I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts about keeping the ads or not going forward. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts.